At this time, if we've got children who would like to go to children's worship, and I think they might have already snuck out, but if we've got children that want to go to children's worship, they can go right out these back doors right here, and Miss Bethany will be there to escort them off to, well, I think they get a bathroom break first and then children's worship. So anyway, uh, head out that way. The rest of you, go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. That's where we're going to be camped out today. I just want to uh, give you a reminder that next Sunday we have a special opportunity. My friend, uh, my friend Josh Monda is going to be here, and he'll be sharing and proclaiming the Word of God with us. Josh uh, was formerly the pastor of First Baptist Church in Washington, Illinois. Um, now he and his family are attending a church. Uh, he's not, not currently pastoring. Um, but he's going to be here and share with you. So he hasn't preached in quite a while, so he's got a lot of pent-up excitement, I'll bet. Uh, so anyway, it's okay. I'll make sure he doesn't go all afternoon. Uh, but anyway, please come back and hear, hear Josh. I know sometimes when you find out ahead of time that the pastor, the, the lead pastor is going to be gone, uh, some people hear that as a, a, as a free pass to go vacation somewhere or to not be at church. And I'm telling you, please, you, you still need to come and be uh, with the church. Um, first of all, Josh is a better preacher than I am, so you miss out on that. Um, and uh, secondly, I'm really thankful for Josh being here because it's going to allow me to take, because I'm still going to be here on Sunday, that's going to allow me to take this whole week to prepare for that camp I've been talking about that I'm preaching at, because um, I have to write five sermons for that camp. And so uh, I'm really excited that Josh is going to be here. So come back and, and be with us next week for that. Um, you know, as we were talking and thinking of Father's Day, and I, I, I got, so I got a really cool Father's Day gift. I got a, I got a new grill, uh, so I'm really excited about that. So yeah, pretty excited about that. Um, so anyway, the, the way that worked was about five years ago, Bethany said, hey, we're going to get you a grill for Father's Day. Go pick out what you want and buy it, um, and I never did. And so here we are five or six years later, and they, they went out and got me a grill. So uh, anyway, really excited for that. Uh, as I was thinking about Father's Day, what's one thing about dads? Well, it's their senses of humor, right? Aren't dad jokes just the best? They're just, Alonzo, I know you love a good dad joke, right? Alonzo's always the one I tell him a joke, and he just looks at me like, I can't believe that just came out of your mouth, right? And so I was talking to some people, trying to figure out what's the best dad joke, because I have a personal favorite, and we're talking about what the best dad joke is, and I said, hey, what rhymes with orange? And the guy said, no, it doesn't. And that's my favorite dad joke right there. So there you go. Hey, it is an honor and a joy to stand before you and proclaim the word of God every week. There's nowhere on earth I would rather be than standing right here before you right now. And that's saying a lot because I've been to Switzerland and it's beautiful, okay? Uh, but, but there's nowhere I would rather be than right here about to share the word of God with you. So if you've got your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 4, it's where we're going to be. Um, let me ask you, have you had a long week? Maybe you've had a long year. I mean, it feels like we've all been in a year that keeps going for the last two and a half years, right? It feels like 20, we are in 2020, and then it became 2021, and we don't know what happened to that, but then 2022 happened, and it was kind of felt like more of the same. And it just feels like a long time. Some of you might feel like in your life, you're just running around putting out fires, like you're just going from issue to issue, putting out fires. Maybe, maybe you feel like life has become a little bit of a rat race and 
you're concerned that you're, you're always going to be anxious, you're always going to be going from one thing to the next, and you're not sure you will ever find peace. Maybe you think that it'll always be this way. Well, thousands of years ago, there was a nation, a whole nation of people who wandered around in the wilderness. The Israelites had, had dishonored God. They would provoked him to anger. And we, we read about that last week. But this generation was told that they would not enter into the land that God had promised them. That'd be what we call the promised land, also what they call it. That they would not enter into the land that God had promised them, but that they would die and their descendants would have the land. And last week we saw that the author of Hebrews was calling his readers back to that history to show them the mistakes of their ancestors and to warn them about the consequences of unbelief and how to avoid it. Today we're going to continue digging into the meat of this book, this letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So if you would, just follow along with me as I read it. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Ask God to help us understand it. God, as we come before you, we understand the truth here that your word lays us bare. It exposes us for who we really are. I pray, Lord, that you would just change our hearts by your word, that we would understand the meaning. You'd help me be clear. That there's anything that we read extra into it, that you would clear that away, help us understand what you mean, and help us understand how it should change the way we live every day. This is about you, Jesus. It's for you. May I I decrease and you increase here. You be big here, Jesus. And you get all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
So this passage is not a hard break or a new idea from the previous passage. This is a continuation. It's a continuation of the previous passage, and it's a continuous a continuation, excuse me, that takes us from warning to promise, from warning to promise. Now, the author does this by, you know, transitioning. So he, last week he was delivering that second warning in the book of Hebrews, delivering that warning and talking about God's people then entering into God's rest. So in the previous section, remember he quoted Psalm 95, and if you, um, if you missed that, go back and take a listen to that and, and catch up on, on the podcast. But in the previous section, he had quoted Psalm 95, and those words cut sharply in the warning to not harden their hearts to the Lord or against the Lord. Now, if you'll remember last week, we saw this warning based on the generation of Israelites who wandered around in the wilderness and provoked God's anger, and they were disobedient, they were hard-hearted towards God, they were in their unbelief, and they, as a result, perished. But now the author takes that psalm and draws from it a promise that is supposed to give his hearers some hope. So you see this warning and then this promise that is supposed to give his readers, hearers, also us, by the way, hope. Israel's disobedience serves as a warning to fear God, lest the present generation also fail to enter God's rest. Now, remember the stakes here, and we're going to talk about fearing God a little bit later towards the end, but remember the stakes here. The author is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are in the midst of a spiritual battle. They're being tempted to alleviate the pressure on them by returning to the old covenant Jewish ways. But the generation of the disobedient, that they're warned using them as an example, that generation of disobedient didn't get to enter the promised land. and, and, And what the author is doing is using them saying, hey, remember what happened. You know the story of your ancestors. You know that they escaped Egypt by the power of God through the working of many miracles. And then they got in the wilderness and they started belly aching and complaining and hardening their heart against God. And therefore, they did not enter into God's rest. They did not enter into the promised land. So these Christians that he's writing to were in danger of saying, you know what, we're just going to go back to the old ways. He said, that's exactly the, the ditch that your ancestors fell into. So they're being used as a warning to those people who are facing the choice of persevering or hardening their heart, which would result in them also not entering God's rest. And we should hear that as both a warning and a promise for us as well. And the author continues his discussion of Psalm 95, and he, he refers back even to Genesis 2, to explain the meaning of rest, which is still accessible to God's people. Now, we should mention this. Now, look, I, I, I've heard people recently say this, and so I'm, I'm uh, this rule about preaching, and I'm about to break it. So just so you know, is you don't need to, to actually say the Greek stuff in your preaching, right? Because it's not a seminary class. You just need to be able to explain it. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to fully break that because what I'm going to tell you is when we think about the idea of rest, there's really two words in the Greek for this, okay? 
One, one is a state of cessation or of work, so stopping of work or activity, or a state of rest, or a place of rest, okay? And it's the word is where we get the word uh, pause from, okay? Because the Greek word is, well, it's katapausis, okay? Is, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, um, but it's P-A-U-S in there. So it's where we, we take that out of pause. You're stopping a worker activity. Now, the second word that's used is uh, not a synonym, but it explains what takes place in God's resting place, namely an eternal festive Sabbath celebration. And that word is sabbatismos. Okay, it's where Sabbath, right? Sabbat, okay. Um, and so that explains what takes place in God's resting place namely an eternal festive Sabbath celebration. So when it says, though, that God rested on the seventh day, it means he ceased his creative work. God did not take a nap, okay? That's not what God was doing. It says he rested, okay? He didn't lay down on the bed with the sound of beach waves on the noisemaker, which is what I did yesterday, and it was amazing. I felt like I was on the beach. It was great. And I turned it up real loud so everybody else in the house could hear that I was on the beach. It was great. Anyway. So what it's saying is God ceased his creative work on the seventh day, his resting from his work. He paused his work on that day, ceased it, stopped it. When we read in verse 4 that on the seventh day God rested from all his work, that's from Genesis 2-2, we are to understand that he stopped his work, but that's when he began his rest. That God is not said to have completed his rest and resumed his work of creation, No, this, in fact, implies that he began his rest on the seventh day, and that rest continues. The Genesis text is now used to show that this rest existed before as well as after the time of the Exodus, okay? So this rest, God's rest, existed before the people were in Exodus from Egypt and after as well. That's important because the argument that the guy continues to make throughout this passage As we've moved from warning to promise of this rest, we find that the author wants us to know that, and this is point number two if you're taking notes, Jesus is superior and provides a superior rest for the people of God. Jesus is superior and provides a superior rest for the people of God. So the people may have been looking for a temporary rest, the promised land back in the previous generation. The current people that, when I say current, I don't mean today, I mean the current people that the author was writing to. He's using those people, those older folks as an example. But he's writing to these Hebrews who may be in danger of wanting a rest from the persecution, a rest from this spiritual battle they were facing, a rest from this, this warfare that was getting quite hot around them. By saying, you know what, that's okay, we'll just go back and do it the old, the old covenant way. That's the way you want me to do it. You're pressuring me, so we'll just to relieve, alleviate that pressure. But the author wants them to know Jesus is superior, as he's been pointing out since verse 1 of chapter 1. And Jesus provides a superior rest for the people of God. Now, the main theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better or Jesus is superior. That's why I titled this sermon series, Jesus is Better. Because he is better than anything else, he is able to provide a rest that is better than any other rest. 
So the, the argument of the author of Hebrews is that Jesus is the best thing ever, and he is, therefore, because he is better, he is able to provide a better rest than anything else that the world might offer you. But let's talk about entering into his rest. For the generation that wandered in the wilderness, rest was more than just a metaphor for a theological reality. See, rest to them represented an end to their wandering around in the wilderness. And that wandering characterized their life for years and years after the Exodus, after they were free from their slavery in Egypt. And it represented them finally finding peace. And once God's people had already entered into Canaan, in Joshua, so the promised land, Canaan, the promised land, the promise of rest still remained even after they had entered in. Rest for them, for them was the promised land, also called Canaan, where they would be safe from their enemies and no longer have to wander around in the wilderness. But it's important to realize that God had promised this rest and the people looked forward to it, and yet, even though God had promised it, they had looked forward to it, they still chose to be unfaithful to God and to his appointed leaders, even though they had experienced God's miracles. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea. And the Bible continually goes back to this, like they had seen the parting of the Red Sea. They had had manna and quail provided by God. They had seen supernatural things happen, the plagues. can't even imagine, like, when you read through the plagues, try to imagine what some of those are like. Just the water turned to blood. I mean, just imagine you go out to the river, and you're going to go fish, and you get out there, and it's just blood. (laughs) I mean, I'd probably be on the ground, passed out at that point, but... Like, just thinking about the miracles they had seen, they had experienced the power of God, they had seen his mighty work, and yet, then they were like, you know, we had meat back in Egypt, though. You know? It's like you forget that you were also slaves. And they were unfaithful to God and to his appointed leaders, even though they'd seen these things. In verse 11, the author implores his audience to strive to enter that rest so that none of them would fall by the same type of disobedience. Now, he is not talking about works salvation, okay? He's not talking about striving and trying and earning your salvation or earning your place in the rest of God. That's not what he's talking about. He's concerned that his audience would make the same mistakes as Israel and harden their hearts to the point where they would not be able to enter the rest of the Lord. And we too are in danger of this. We're also on a journey. We're on this faith journey as we walk with God through this life. And many will experience God working in their lives, but will not submit to him, but will harden their hearts against him. And those who do not ever repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection in their place will not experience the grace that he offers them. Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 2 says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Faith is a word we talk about a lot within the church. The Greek word here for faith entails believing in the promises of God, trusting in his promises. 
people who don't trust God's promises, including the promise of rest, and who reject anything that they have not themselves experienced are excluded from the benefits of those very promises. So those who don't take God at his word and trust his promises get excluded from those very promises. So if you're like, I don't believe I'll ever see those things, I don't believe that, then yes, you're right, you won't, you won't experience that because you're rejecting it. You're rejecting God. The rest that people enter through faith was not just entering into the promised land, though. This wasn't just about entering into the promised land. As we move through this passage, it's clear that there is yet still, for those who live and follow Jesus, there's another rest to enter into. And this is God's rest. And the author uses Joshua to show that their rest wasn't final. And I love this because one of the reasons I wanted to preach through Hebrews is I really wanted to go back and preach through an Old Testament, pass, uh, Old Testament book because we had been in Philippians, we'd been in the New Testament. And I wanted to preach through some of the Old Testament, but then I thought, ah, but Hebrews does such a good job of connecting and showing the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament and gets us deeply into uh, what happened in the narrative and, and theologically what was going on in the Old Testament. Hebrews 4, 8 through 10 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So Joshua became leader of Israel after Moses died. Moses is the one that led them out of Egypt. Okay, you've probably heard the whole, let my people go. All right, (laughs) You, you may have heard of that. You may not, and that's okay. But Joshua became the leader of Israel after Moses died. And then Joshua led them in their conquest of the promised land. And that land, the promised land, represented rest for God's people. In, in Joshua 1.13, it says, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. See, the people of Israel in the Bible pined, or excuse me, pinned a lot of hopes and dreams. They pinned their hopes and dreams on the hope of resting in this promised land and coming into all that God had promised them. Remember, they didn't fully understand everything. They didn't fully understand all the prophecies. They didn't fully understand, uh, obviously, the prophecy of Messiah that was to come, that that was Jesus. But that rest in the promised land from right up in him using Joshua as an example to say that rest was not ultimate. That rest was not final. Just like the Old Testament sacrificial system was not ultimate or final because it had to continually be, re- you had to keep sac- sacrificing animals over and over again. It wasn't a once and for all. This rest in the promised land was not ultimate or final for the people of God. There was still a rest coming. And you see the author continually reaching out to his audience that they would not fall back into being Israel-centric, but urges them to see the giant flashing arrows pointing to Christ, that they not be Israel-centric, but Christ-centric that they be centered on Christ and the gospel. The promise of rest is still open. It's still promised ahead to the people of God, and that should encourage us to endure and to persevere, 
to move forward into that rest that God is prepared for those who love him. How do we enter this rest? Well, we enter the rest through the word of God. We enter God's rest through the word. If you're taking notes, you should write that down as point number three. We enter God's rest through the word. Verse 12 is probably one of the most well-known verses in Hebrews. Uh, At least it is for me. I'm sure that when it comes to verses about the word of God, it ranks somewhere towards the top. And that's Hebrews 4, verse 12, and it says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I want to read verse 13 as well. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 12, um, when I started out in youth ministry, um, I was, the church that licensed me to the ministry gave me this little thin line Bible. It's in my office. It's still there. Um, it's not in great shape because it's old now, but um, like me. Uh, anyway, uh, I meant I'm not in great shape. I guess I'm old too, but anyway. And in that book, though, in the Bible, the, the, the New Living Translation, the way they translated that verse, and, and, and I can share with you all about the translations, and it's more of a thought-for-thought thought translation, not a word-for-word translation, and so it's not one I would use now for preaching and teaching, but, um, but it's fine for just personal reading and things like that. But anyway, with all that caveat aside, the way that that first edition of that translation. And and when I went to college, that translation was like for our survey classes um, that everybody in the school had to take for Old Testament, New Testament survey. It was like a textbook because one of the the staff in the Bible department was on the translation committee. And so uh, because Dr. Bergen was on the translation committee, it got to use. So anyway, we, we used that. And in that first edition, the way they translated that verse was it says that that the Bible, speaking of the word, it says it exposes us for what we really are. It exposes us for what we really are, or who we really are, one of the two. So I just want to walk through this, because it's important that we understand why the word of God is important, because it's by the word of God, the truth of God, the word spoken by God, which is Jesus revealed to us, right? And Jesus is the word made flesh, we need to understand what it is that we're getting here. So I just want to walk through a few of these phrases. Number one is living and active. Living and active. This recall, recalls the description of God that was given in Hebrews 3, uh, verse 12. The word of God is able to examine and to judge those who hear it. It's living and active. And according to Isaiah 55, 11, the word of God will accomplish the purpose for which God sends it out to do. So when the word of God goes out, it will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. It will accomplish God's purpose for it. It's living and active and is able to examine and judge. Secondly, it's like a double-edged sword. Double-edged sword is a weapon of warfare. It cuts going and coming. That's why swords had 
two edges, okay? So when you were swinging like this, you weren't just cutting one way, you were cutting both ways. It's a weapon of warfare. The Word of God can penetrate the immaterial from the material, meaning the whole person, the whole person. It's living and active. It's like a double-edged sword. It says that it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit. The material from the immaterial, it can just expose completely. When it says in verse 13 that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The idea here is that all things are open to examination by God. The exposure to the word of God means exposure to God himself. So when we're exposed to the word of God, it's being exposed to God himself. Because God has spoken in his word. He's speaking to us through his words. We talked about that last week. And we are, when you're naked, it's hard to hide anything, right? You're just there. It's a very vulnerable feeling. It goes on, it says, laid bare. When, when we think about being laid bare, we are helpless. And actually it doesn't in this translation, but... It says, uh, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But exposed, being laid bare. We are helpless before it. The truth about us is revealed by the word of God. It exposes us for who we are and what we really are. I have a theory, and I've, I've, I've said this for years. You can decide whether I'm right or not. I think I'm right. Obviously, I wouldn't probably say it, right? Here's my theory. Because the Word of God exposes us for who we really are, lays us bare, we're naked, exposed before it, and, it, and God knows all about us. Everything is open for His examination. Because we are laid bare before Him, and we are exposed for who we really are, I think that may be one of the reasons why people don't like to read the Word of God. Because we come to the Word of God, we get shown who we really are and who God really is, and it makes us vulnerable, and we don't like that. Most people don't like to be told or made to think that they're wrong. But part, an indispensable part of the Christian faith is repentance of our sin, and that's acknowledging, I've sinned against you, God. I'm wrong. You're right. Like, at a very simple, basic level, is realizing that I was wrong. And the Word of God exposes us for where we're wrong. And, and we use the word sin because that's what the word the Bible uses, where we've sinned. But nobody likes to be told that they're wrong or they're in sin. Very special people like to be told that so that they can quickly repent of that sin and seek the Lord. The Word of God sets us free to enter God's rest. Because it is in the Word of God where we find the gospel. The gospel sets us free to enter God's rest. 
because when we're exposed, I once heard someone say, uh, in a, it was a musician in a live concert, and I heard it on a recording, and he said, the best thing that could ever happen to you is for your deepest, darkest sin to be broadcast on the six o'clock news. And I was like, what? The best thing that could ever happen to you is for that sin that you carry around and you don't tell anybody about it and you think you can hide it from everybody. And if we're real honest, we think we can hide it from God. This passage would say that we cannot. The best thing to happen would be for that to be broadcast on the six o'clock news. And you're like, no, no, I don't want people to know about that. The reason he said that was because we spend so much time and energy trying to look perfect, trying to look like we don't have sin, trying to look like the pretty clean, happy church folk. And we spend energy and and we're, we're worked up and we don't have rest in that, right? Because it's a lot of work to try and hide sin. But the best thing that could happen for you would be for that to be broadcast on the six o'clock news or social media, because I think this came out before that was a big thing. Because then you can't hide it anymore from anybody. And you're free to just deal with that, you and God. You're free to deal with that before God because you don't have to keep up the facade of trying to be, oh, well, I got to act like I'm perfect anymore. That's the, the thing. If it were exposed. Well, I'm here to tell you it's already been exposed to God. The Word of God exposes it, lays it bare. And so what do we do with that? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've all sinned. The Bible tells us that. So it's a level playing field. That sin, Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us, that without, there, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So something had to die, and those animal sacrifices, they weren't good enough, okay, because they had to keep being done over and over. There needed to be a once-and-for-all sacrifice for sin that could allow God's people to enter God's rest, this ultimate, final, permanent rest in eternity, right, where God's uh, celebrated Sabbath rest going on. And so, Jesus, Son of God, God in the flesh, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life with no sin, never having to hide anything, living perfectly, openly before God and man, and gave that perfect life willingly on a cross as the perfect sacrifice, as a substitute for you and me, as a substitute for sinners, taking our sin upon himself and in his death, giving us the righteousness of God for those who've trusted in him. And he died and was buried, and three days later rose from the grave by the power of God, showing that God accepted that sacrifice and that it was now possible for those who have trusted in Jesus and persevere in their faith in Jesus, showing that their faith was real, to enter God's rest ultimately and finally. We can understand the concept of rest as an analogy for future salvation. There was another rest for them to look forward to, and there's a rest for us to look forward to, where we can rest from our work and rest in the finished work of the cross. Jesus' finished work is what enables us to have that future rest. 
It's not our work. It's his work. It's not our work. It's his work. And Jesus said on the cross that it is finished. So what do we, what do, we do with that? How does that change how we live? As I walk through this, I'm going to invite our musicians to come back up here and get ready to play again. But how do we take this idea of God's rest in relation to that warning to not harden our hearts and apply that in our lives? It's going to be similar to what we said last week. Number one is trust the gospel. So even today we can rest, even though it's not the final rest, we can rest in the finished work of Christ that we are a part of that already not yet kingdom. And we could rest in the finished work of God. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, my pages are sticking together. Oh, there we go. No, they're not. There's only one page. Can't stick to itself. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The Old Testament use of the word fear often indicates awe or reverence. To fear, and I realize this is in the New Testament, but, but to fear God is to express loyalty to him and faithfulness to his covenant. Those who fear God exhibit trust in him and obedience to the things he commands. And according to the Old Testament... Those who fear God obtain God's protection, wisdom, and blessing. But proper fear of the Lord is a response to God's holiness. We see God's holiness in the Word. We see His holiness and our fear of God, our standing in awe and reverence of God, is how we respond to His holiness. And that fear of God, that moves us to obedience to loyalty, and to faithfulness. So we should trust the gospel and and fear God. Secondly is take heed to the sad history of Israel and the important lessons that we learn from them. But a lot of times we look back at Israel and we're like, oh, those dummies, right? I mean, we do that with the, the disciples too. We look at the disciples sometimes with Jesus and we're like, oh my gosh, you guys are so thick, right? But what we need to do is look back at them and take heed of that poor example that we not fall into the same ditch on the side of the road. And that's what the guy in Hebrews, that's what the author of Hebrews, call him the guy in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, sorry. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Number three, keep trusting the promises of God. How do you do that? Well, live a godly life, give diligence. It's the opposite of drifting. We're told to take heed, to to Pay attention so that we don't drift away. This exhortation is directed at believers whose lives should be characterized by perseverance. Understand, he wasn't talking to unbelievers. He was talking to these folks who had professed Christ, saying, persevere. Persevere. Fear God. Pay attention But those who enter God's God's rest will participate in the great Sabbath celebration at God's throne when Jesus returns. 
So persevere in your faith. Stand firm in what you believe and trust the gospel. Trust Jesus till the very end, even, even though sometimes, friends, you may feel like you are hanging on for dear life. I've been there. Sometimes that's all we can do. There was a song, I'm trying to remember it now, but off the top of my head, talked about clinging on to Jesus for life. Hold on to Jesus for life. Stephen Curtis Chapman, that's who it was. Hold on to Jesus for life. Sometimes that's all we can do. Do the things that build your affections for Christ. Don't do the things that steal your affections for Christ. You hear me say that a lot. Because those things that steal our affections for Christ may cause us to drift. And the last two things I want to say is this. God is our resting place. Heaven is only heaven because God is there. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And we find our rest in Christ and Christ alone. And you can find rest. You can rest in the completed work of Christ today and the promise of eternity with him. So the question for you is, will you believe? Will you trust the gospel? Will you repent of your sin and believe the gospel and trust him? Some of you came in dragging in here. You've had uh, a terrible week. You feel like you've been through hell on earth. Okay, and, and you came in here, and you're like, I just want something. And that something is, hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Instead of pushing away when things are hard, and when there's persecution, when there's all kinds of strife, instead of pushing away, pull closer in. And he will draw you in. Would you stand with me? As we come to this final song, I want to encourage you this morning. Uh, some of you might just need to take a moment while we sing, let the words kind of wash over you, and just rest in Jesus. Maybe that's all you got strength to do, is just throw yourself on his mercy and say, Jesus, I just rest in you this morning. I trust you. I take you at your word. Some of you maybe came in and you're, maybe you're wrestling with some sin. Maybe there's some temptation in your life that's pulling you towards drifting away. And you just need to say, Jesus, uh, you know, forgive me for that. Forgive me for, maybe you got wrapped up in sin and you need to just confess it. You need to repent of that sin and believe the gospel that Jesus died for that sin too. All your sin. The stuff yesterday, today, and the stuff tomorrow. And you need to rest in the forgiveness of God, whatever that is. Maybe you just need to look forward and you're like, man, things are rough right now and I want to just rest in that promise that I have eternity with Christ to look forward to and abundant life with Christ right now to live. Whatever it is. I'll be around afterwards if you need to talk or pray about anything, but you can always turn to the person next to you and pray as well. There's a room full of people who love you your church family who wants to support you and help you to cling to Jesus for life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we have a rest. There is a rest coming that is ultimate for those who have trusted in Jesus, those who you have bought with your blood on the cross. Help us to cling tightly to you, even when it feels like all we got is <laughs> just holding the hem of the garment. <laughs> Help us to cling to you because we know that you always prove yourself trustworthy and faithful and true. 
and we believe. Help our unbelief, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing.